0: Blog Talk Radio. Okay, welcome. This is Dr. John Wadsworth with Whitestone Ministry and Blog Talk Radio, Whitestone Relationship Recovery Radio. Uh, today is December eighth of two thousand and nine, and I am at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary in the office of the Director of Safety and Security. The office. This is. Uh, the, the person, the director, his name is Barry Hoot Busby, better known to me and many others as Hoot. And uh, Barry, or Hoot, has uh, allowed or agreed to, uh, his given his testimony to our, our celebrity testimony time on Blog Talk Radio, and it's a privilege to be with uh, Barry this morning, or Hoot this morning. Uh, Hoot was formerly the chief of police at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and now he was promoted to director of safety and security. And I'm just going to let, uh, Hoot tell you about himself, what he's about ready to do in, uh, in finishing up here at the seminary and his immediate plans, uh, for December and January, which is very exciting to me being retired military and, um, I have a, a strong uh, tenderness toward the military, and so, uh, Hood, would you tell us what's happening to you right now and your near future? Well, sure, John. The first thing I'd like
1: to do is say thank you very much for this opportunity.
0: It's, it's absolutely my privilege.
1: Uh, in the time that I've known you, uh, you've been a good inspiration to me about doing ministry and and uh, and reaching out in love to folks. And so, John, I, I really, really appreciate this and the opportunity to speak to your audience. Today, but um, yeah, right now uh, I'm in a transition. Uh, once again, aren't we almost always in our lives in transition? But uh, I'm returning to what I believe God has called me to do, which is chaplaincy in the United States Army. And, uh, and it's a love of mine that I've, that he placed in my heart since I was 14 years old, but I just didn't understand it uh, all the way in, uh, through the process. And now at, at, at almost 39 years old, um, finally reaching in the journey, Um, the beginning of this ministry
0: uh, to soldiers in the Army. And so you're going back into the military. Absolutely. Now, I understand that uh, I say back into the military. Tell us uh, what's going to happen to you uh, uh, in December 23rd, on December 23rd, and what's going to happen to you on January 10th. It's actually December
1: uh, 19th. That I will um, uh, finally graduate from the seminary. It's been a seven-year journey here at the uh, seminary. Uh, Little things like Katrina happened along the way. And um, so during that journey, I've had to take a few changes to the path and and, uh, move along. But i finally graduate on the 19th and also will be recommissioned. Uh, I've been commissioned now twice prior, but uh, this time I'll be recommissioned as a captain. Um, I've got 10 years active-duty service and then two years inactive uh, service uh, that I'm returning to. And uh, for those who know anything about the military, by the time this is all over and I'm up for the Majors Board again, I'll have been a, a captain for 17 years, which is just an incredible amount of time considering most people have a 20-year career. But um, anyway, that's, that's what will be happening, and then I'll be off to school in January Uh, to begin the the military training i've I've gotten theological education part now and i'll begin the military training uh, specifically Uh, oddly enough i'm returning home as it were Uh, my last job in the army i was a basic training company commander and uh, less than a mile from the chaplain school at fort jackson and uh, just down the hill the school is up the hill and um, and i used to be in charge of the very ranges that i'm now going to have to go run through so this is uh this is a bit of submission for me, a little bit of uh, servanthood, and uh, returning uh, to some things that, that, that uh, my how the tables have turned, going from leader to follower. And uh, so it's uh, an exciting time, and, uh, but an interesting time to come. So you as a company commander at this uh, training facility? Correct. Uh, Fort Jackson primarily is a basic training and uh, an advanced individual training uh, installation for the United States Army and uh, there's uh, multiple units there that, that do basic training on a rotational basis. And uh, I was a company commander, so that means I had about 220, 240 soldiers for uh, eight to nine weeks at a time and uh, took them from straight-off-the-street uh, civilians to, uh, to standing proud on the, on the parade ground soldiers and uh, sending them off to their advanced training and then subsequently
0: to their units. Now, you, did, you, you had, you was a captain in the Army, Um, Now, what branch of the Army were you in? Correct. This kind of stems back to my my long-range testimony,
1: but from age 14, as I alluded to a little while ago, I I was really impressed upon wanting to join the military. I just love the military all around, every branch of service. And um, and so I began investigating, and my desire was always to be the best. I've always wanted to, to be the overachiever, to be the guy on top. And so I started researching the the Navy SEALs and the Air Force Pararescue and the Army Rangers and Army Special Forces and all those guys. And and I settled on, in in my 14-year-old mind, that the Army gave me the broadest opportunity to to advance myself, to to have opportunities in the special operations community, and to do that. So that's that's where my journey began. But I made decisions along the way to become an officer rather than an enlisted man. And uh, there's several influences in my life that, that brought that about. But a friend of mine that was in the uh, Special Operations Unit, most people refer to as Delta, and I were talking about my career path. And uh, he encouraged me to become a military intelligence officer first and uh, to get my top-secret security clearance to, to do some of the fun things that you can do in military intelligence and to learn the, the behind-the-scenes stuff that, um, that causes operations to either succeed or to fail. And um, so, so that's what I was. To the, the, the cutting to the chase, the bottom line is that I was a military intelligence officer for my 10 years. Uh, but during that time, I also uh, sought to be a, a ranger. I sought to be a, a special forces officer. I went to school for that over a year. And um, I sought to be a civil affairs officer, which is another special operations unit. And I also sought to, to join Delta Force uh, and Task Force 160. So. All of that is, uh, is a broader brushstroke of, of the picture, but uh, the reality was I was an intelligence officer and had some
0: fantastic opportunities um, along the, the tenure path that I've had so far. Okay, so here we are on December 8th of uh, 2009. You uh, uh, admitted to being 39 years old, and, <laughs> uh, and you're about ready to go into the chaplaincy <coughs> after having so many years in the Army. And um, uh, what I'd like to do now is uh, would you tell us about uh, your heritage or how your upbringing and where you were raised and everything else and so we can get an idea of what, uh, how you came to this point in your life. A-
1: absolutely. And then that part of my testimony is, is the part that encourages me. Some people that were brought up in the church um, are sometimes reluctant to tell their testimony, but the reality is that we all have to come to Jesus Christ on our own. And uh, so that, that's why I'm proud to tell, you know, this part of mine. I had to discover Christ myself. I was given lots of opportunities, but I also had the opportunity to turn away, to reject. And uh, so my journey to, to Christ began before I was born. I was born to Christian parents that attended church. Uh, my, my father became a deacon eventually. Um, they were very active in the church, still are very active in the church. I came even from a, a further back heritage than that of, of uh of Christians, uh, of, of long-term married couples, uh, very little divorce in my family genealogy at all, and uh, the commitment to one another, and the commitment to Christ was very strong. Uh, there's a Southern Baptist pastor as my great uncle. Uh, during World War II, um, is also part of my heritage, but none of that means a thing except that I accepted Christ. None of those people could have saved me. It was me and, and me alone that had to make the decision. And so God intercepted me as a nine-year-old boy. Uh, I've enjoyed singing my whole life. i a little hoarse right now as we go into the Christmas uh, time frame, uh, getting ready to sing. But uh, I've been singing solo since I was five years old. And uh, so uh, the church we were involved in did uh, children's musicals every year. And uh, at, at nine years old, we did a, a musical called What's New Corky? It was, it was the big musical in the Southern Baptist realm uh, at that time. And, uh, and we were putting it on. And in the course of that, I, I was played the lead character, Corky. And in the course of the production, uh, Corky is, is befriended by a man that owns a junkyard and a second-hand store kind of a thing. And he has lovingly shown his need for Christ, his, his uh, desperation of sin, uh, his way of treating people, and his need for Christ. And as I got into the character of that role, I started realizing that that was me, that I needed that as well. So at, at nine years old, uh, sitting on the back row of, of, of our church one Sunday morning, uh, I surrendered my life to Christ in the mind of a nine-year-old and whatever that means. And it was absolutely, it's, it's one of the only childhood memories that I have. It's very vivid. Uh, my heart was broken. I wept as I went down the aisle. I didn't understand the, the immensity of sin, but I knew that I was a sinner and that I needed Christ and so I came to salvation was baptized in that church and and presented that production as a Christian and continued to grow up in that church primarily Um, moved around a little bit with my father's job uh, with the electric company and uh, but primarily grew up in that church and uh, participated in everything was known as a good kid Um, was a good kid in high school Um, most of the people in my high school knew me Um, but as a late in my late teen years, I started wondering what else was out there. What was there that uh, that as a, a Christian I was missing out on? You know, all, all my friends didn't participate in church activities like I did, and um, some did, but most didn't. And what were they doing that that was was different? Was I missing something? And so I didn't doubt my Christianity, but uh, I just was curious about uh, about other things in life.
0: Let me ask you something real quick before you go into your teenage years. Uh, where were you raised, born and raised at? Oh, yeah. I forgot to say that. Um, Macomb, Mississippi is is primarily
1: um, what I claim is home. I, like I alluded to earlier, my father worked for Mississippi Power and Light at the time. It's now Entergy, And um, he moved up and down Highway 55, basically, as job promotions came. So was born in Brookhaven, moved to uh, Jackson, moved to Greenville, moved to Crystal Springs. But most of my growing up years were in Macomb. Okay.
0: okay so you... Uh, were are faithful in church, and you were faithful in, in a teenage. Were you active in church? Uh, well, you seemed like you were active in church before you surrendered to Christ. Did you stay active in church a- after, or more? did you become more active in church after you were surrendered to Christ? I, I would say probably more active. Um, shortly after that, we moved to
1: Crystal Springs. We moved to a little bit bigger church than I was uh, saved in. And uh, they had a lot of activities, and I, I would dare say that I was probably there four or five times a, a week, uh, either riding my own bicycle from my, my home to the church or, um, or my parents taking me there for, for normal worship service times. But was involved in the Royal Ambassadors, which is a Southern Baptist men boy, young boys training program. I uh, was involved in every choir program that they had. Again, loved to sing, uh, played trumpet for the, the church when I could. Uh, became involved in a youth group through time, came, became a teacher in the youth group um, along the path and, and was, was very active in, um, in talking to my friends and discussing. Um, as a young teenager, uh, up into my teen years, Christ was so real in my life that I, that I desired to show that love to everybody. And it, it's fascinating to me in my journey that I was right there, but yet I could still make mistakes, that I was, I was not infallible. But um, my general practice throughout most of high school was I spent my entire lunch period talking to people, especially people that looked like they were hurting. Uh, I was known as a, as a friend to most. Um, th- this leads into my call to ministry a little bit uh, for the last three years in high school, um, we had a program, there were 342 in my graduating class, so it was a fairly large school. And, uh, but we had a program called Natural Helpers. It was a peer counseling program. Each year, um, about six to eight students were selected, along with two teachers that were considered by the, the entire school body to be people that they trusted that they could talk to and, and be counseled by. And then the school paid for us to go to a, a week long training session to learn to be better peer counselors and it was a, a fantastic uh, opportunity as as a, as a kid that i didn't realize would would come around to to play a major role in the way i do things even today but um but throughout high school i always seemed to befriend the the down and outers i always seemed to uh to to be seeing people that were hurting and not the you know i wasn't attracted to the necessarily to the uh the quarterback or to the best looking girl in in the school the, the head cheerleader uh, although i knew they were hurting as well but um i seemed to find the the ugly ducklings and the and the people that were just left out and probably the most fascinating time that i had in this rural mississippi town was uh a small mississippi town was uh, we had a, a kid showed up that was uh, proclaimed to be a skinhead he wore the whole jack boots and and uh and and uh, white power t-shirt and all that kind of stuff i don't know how our school let him get away with it but he but he did and uh but i was also friends with a with about a 280-pound black guy, and uh, he and I were, were, were real close, and we would talk at lunchtime. And uh, the, the picture that I always have in my mind from high school is me sitting uh, on an air conditioner compressor uh, with, this, with this black guy on my right-hand side and a, and a white supremacist on my left-hand side and me kind of inter- intermediating a uh, conversation between the two of them. And the reality was we all grew from one another and, and actually learned to, to love each other, and I, I think there's some great relationships. I've, I've lost contact with both those guys. But, um, but I trust that, uh, that the Lord has intercepted them with His Spirit
0: along the way, and that somehow I've I've been a part of that. Let me ask you about your salvation experience. You said that when you were nine years old, you were in the back of the church, and you um, knew that you were a sinner, you became very emotional, and you went forward in the church, correct? Correct. Why did you go forward? Um, at that time, very
1: traditional Southern Baptist Church, we had an altar call. We had a... a invitation time, uh, 12 verses of just as I am kind of thing, and, um, and and that was just, that was the time that you did that. I'd already spoken to my parents um, about it, uh, the, my desire, but um, but that was, you know, the traditional time that you, you made that commitment, and so it just...
0: So you went forward, forward, and what
1: happened? Uh, the pastor met me. Uh, he basically had anticipated that I would be coming at some point. And uh, he sat down, spoke with me for a few moments and verified what I was doing. And and then uh, there was a commitment card that, you know, very, very traditional, very typical, uh, that they had me fill out um, for church membership and that type of stuff. And then a deacon came and, and the pastor presented me to the church. And um, and that, that's something that I, I think is fantastic. We do it in different ways in different churches, but uh, we are to be disciple makers. We're to, to bear the testimony of Christ. And so that opportunity in the church to declare publicly what we've done. It's not a hidden thing. It's not a, once our light has been lit, it's not to be hidden under a bush. And so, um, um, or hidden behind a bush, but it's a time, a commitment time within the church that, that we can say, we can begin to say that my life has been changed and changed dramatically. There was a transforming of the renewing of my mind and, and uh, and the stuff that was happening in my life—did I look any different from the, the kid the day before? Absolutely not. But inside, there was a major change going on, and I wanted everybody to know that. Now,
0: <clears throat> I'm just asking you this: Just you said that uh, you were you became a light um, in your immediate church community. When do you think um, that the light was turned on? The beginning.
1: I'm what I call a process Christian. <laughs> okay, and so some people have a definitive date. You know, on, on this day I was half drunk, and and God called out to me, and I was sitting in my truck in the church parking lot, and I saw the cross, and and I turned to, it. well, that's not me. Um, that's not my testimony. My my testimony involves faithful parents that saw to it that I went to church whether I wanted to or not. Uh, faithful church leaders. Uh, Sunday school teachers, music directors that, um, that all along the way showed me Christ lived out for one thing, but they also taught me the doctrines of the church. They taught me, uh, the Bible. They taught me stories from the Bible. And so the Bible has never not been real to me. Um, I've, you know, perhaps in my, my early twenties, I questioned a few things, um, some of the more miraculous aspects of it, but never did I consider the Bible in total um, fallacy at all or fiction or, or fairy tale um, from very early on. It was taught to me as fact, and, and I believed it as fact. And so along the way, the, the lamp was kindled, I guess, but um, in the midst of that, uh, facing the reality in the midst of that um, childhood um, uh, musical is where the light was lit.
0: I would say. So okay, and, and uh, is, would you say you surrendered uh, to uh, this process that uh, you had been uh, exposed to? Absolutely, and as far as a nine-year-old
1: can. Yeah. And so it was. It was a, a process even further, you know, through the next several years. That that's something I just came out of class where we where we discussed this very thing. I've been very privileged um, in my journey to have discipleship before salvation and to have discipleship after salvation. And so that's that's one of the big problems we have in the church today, I feel. One of the big problems we have as Christians is we're, we're in such a rush to make converts, but that's not what the Great Commission says. The Great Commission says make disciples. And so I'm okay in... Um, I hope this doesn't sound like heresy to you, but I'm okay uh, confronting somebody with the gospel and not getting a decision at that moment. Amen. That's all right with me. Amen. I've been put there. I feel like God has led me, the Holy Spirit has done whatever preparation to bring me to the point of a per, to intersecting a person's life in a divine appointment to invest in their life in, the, in some part of the discipleship process. And to me, discipleship begins before conversion and continues absolutely after conversion and is necessary after conversion. Now, some people have an instantaneous Billy Graham transformational moment and they never turn back and they go from there. That's great. But I think the large majority of us have to have been exposed. uh, Statistics have shown people have to be exposed to the gospel 27 times before they come to Christ. Well, I believe I've been number six through ten with about 1,000 people in my life, and I'm okay with that. Um, one of those is a, a miraculous testimony, a drill sergeant that I had when I was basic training commander, that I invested in his life and not knowing that I really did, a year later, my chaplain called me up to say that he had accepted Christ. I thought this guy would have died and gone to hell, quite frankly, uh, lost forever uh, because of his lifestyle and his attitude, but some little thing along the way, um, made that transition. So, I'm I'm a process Christian. Um, I'm, I believe that um, my conversion came at that day, but that also the um, the discipleship process continued in my life, and I continue to grow and uh, be invested in by some wonderful youth leaders and uh, ministers of music, uh, pastors that really cared. Uh, RA the Royal Ambassador leaders, and um, and even uh, some of the schools that I went to. This. I had graduated high school in '89, and this was before you know school was being pushed out of. I mean, prayer was being pushed out of school, but um, but still, there was. I had teachers. There were Christians that lived out their Christian life in front of me, and uh, and weren't afraid even in the public school to share that, and um, and I appreciate those teachers. Unfortunately, many of them had to retire because of current circumstances, and that's. Um, uh, it's one of the reasons my wife and I have unfortunately had to choose to um, to homeschool, is because we're afraid that that just doesn't exist in the public school system anymore, uh, and we want to control what it is that our children hear, and uh, we want to expose them like we were exposed to the reality of the gospel, to the truth of the of the Bible, and to the reality of God. Amen.
0: You know, brother, I'm just uh, looking at uh, the things on your wall. Uh, you got a bachelor's uh, of science in, uh, from Mississippi State University. Go dogs! <laughs> and then, uh, then there's a uh, uh, it looks like a, uh, a painting, though, huh? It's
1: it's a handmade drawing, and it's it's a it's kind of a joke that my uh, NCOs are playing on me. Um, uh, what what he's describing is uh, it's uh, called a guide on in the military. And uh, typically, when a commander leaves the, the unit, he gets the guide on that's, that's carried. The guide on represents when the commander is present. The guide on is the, the rallying point for the unit. And uh, typically, a commander gets, uh, gets that as a, a present when he leaves. And uh, my NCOs were, were being funny. They loved to, loved to mess with me, and I loved to mess with them back. And uh, they had this uh, rather rough drawing of a guide on drawn by one of my soldiers. Uh, framed, uh, in, in just, uh, originally in a very battered and, and, terrible looking frame. And, uh, they presented it to me with, with much pomp and circumstance as if it was, uh, the real thing. And, and, uh, after they saw the, the great look of disappointment on my face, they, uh, they stopped the presentation and brought out the
0: real thing. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, was one of those sergeants, uh, that surrendered to Christ one of these guys, one of these SCOs?
1: Sure was. He oh. sure was.
0: And, uh, and at that time and, he was not a he was
1: not a believer and uh, but he respected me and uh, one of those uh, those funny things when uh, when we come to christ it's it's a funny journey that i, I trust many in the audience have have, uh, have experienced that when we surrender people treat us different and uh, this this nco in particular used to come into my office all the time cussing a blue streak and talking about how terrible the soldiers were and how we needed to change things and blah 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 and i had to calm me down i talked to him and when I told them uh, six months from my departure on active duty that I was I was going to be a chaplain, the very next day he came in, and he started ranting and raving again. He stopped. Me. He said, "Oh, I'm sorry, sir, uh, I don't mean to be cussing in front of a chaplain." I said, "Dude, I'm the same guy I was yesterday. <laughs> What's different?" And uh, and I think that the reality of that was uh, was was part of what was part of his journey, is uh, that I was a sincere Christian. That that the changes that that happened in my life were. Um, we're not, uh, it's not my role to condemn anybody. As a good friend of mine, Mel Jones says, uh, I don't have a junior Holy Spirit badge. It's, uh, it's not my job to convict people, it's my job to, to love people and to demonstrate Christ before them, and, um, and it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict people of their sins.
0: Now the next one is, uh, it looks like a flag um, uh, in a, a case and uh, there's still some work to be done on it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a, uh, I can't decide what to put in
1: it. That That is part of my heritage and part of my spiritual heritage. That's, the flag is the coffin flag from my uh, grandfather. Uh, he was a prisoner of war in World War II uh, at the, from the fall of Bataan. Uh, he was a prisoner of war for three years and four months until the uh, Japanese surrender was signed. Um Incredible endurance stories of endurance from him, incredible uh, stories of uh, perseverance, incredible stories of um, of God's sovereignty and providence uh, from his life. And, and the reason I keep the flag, keep the dog tags, keep the memory of him is I wouldn't be here today uh, had he not survived many, many, many encounters in the face of death. And uh, he's been my inspiration. Uh, for a lot of things, I carry his, uh, his MRE spoon or his, uh, his, his uh, mess kit spoon from World War II. I, I carry it with me every time I go to the field to be reminded that I'm getting to eat that day. Uh, he didn't get to eat many, many days. And so for his sacrifice, I, I try to retain his memory. Um, that's a quick story. If we've got time, I'd love to share. His, my great-grandfather uh, worked for the railroad company. Uh, my grandfather, on his, on his preparation to go to uh, uh, go to war in the Pacific Theater, uh, had gone through basic training, his advanced training, and uh, because my grandfather, great grandfather, worked for the railroad, uh, he was able to get the the train times for the troop movement trains, which was was typically kept top secret. They didn't want anybody to know when the trains were moving, and he found out when my grandfather was going to be coming through this particular railroad station, and he took him a, a little pocket New Testament. A little, little Gideon New Testament type thing, and uh, met him at the at the junction of the train. He couldn't get off the train, but he he gave him the Bible, gave him a hug, and and sent him off to war, uh, not to see him again for three years, for over three years. And uh, the story of that little Bible um, is is just incredible. Granddaddy kept that in his pocket um, during the Bataan Death March. That's uh, been so horrifically portrayed. It is such a terrible thing, of um, of unjust massacre. Um, the Japanese soldiers would search prisoners for things that were stamped made in Japan. They would search for religious articles. And if they found any of these type of things, they would uh, usually they would kill the soldier that had them. So soldiers were having to, to just throw these things away so that they wouldn't get caught with them. Well, my grandfather insisted on keeping the Bible in his pocket. And um, when he got searched by the, the guard that searched him, Um, You know, basically a full pat down, found everything, uh, pulled the Bible out, flipped through it, and in broken English, handed it back to him and said, me Christian too. And uh, that has always just rocked my world, that uh, even in the midst of of the desperation of the Japanese culture at that time, that Christ was working and that Christ intercepted my grandfather on a hot day before a, a terrible, terrible event occurred and spared his life. Now, the part of life and pain and suffering that I don't understand is that a good friend of my grandfather's, not a mile down the road, was searched in a similar manner by someone else, and a pocket Bible was found on him, and he was bayoneted to death at that moment. Why my grandfather was spared and and this man was not, I don't know. But but I am determined daily, every time I look at the flag, to... uh, to live my life in such a way to be worthy of the sacrifice first that he made and the sacrifice of Christ that was made for him that spared his life that day. Thank
0: you, thank you. Uh, now the uh, next one I asked you to take a photograph of, and it seems like a, uh, a lot of personal uh, memories in this one. Um, uh, your blue hat, which is a NATO hat, um, where is this, or what part of the world is this map of? Um, it's a
1: a small little diorama, I guess, of uh, with a map in the background of Haiti, uh, specifically Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Um, I was deployed under the administration of, of uh, President Clinton uh, to Port-au-Prince, along with the 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment. Um, we went, the, the mission that I had was at a time that we were, uh, trying to transition the country from uh, from dictatorship to to uh, presidency, uh, our primary job was protecting the the individual election sites uh, when the the democratic election was held that uh, ultimately
0: elected uh, President Aristide um, as the president of, of, of Haiti. And the next one is a uh, plaque, and what is that? Uh, that too is
1: a, a guide on, but it's a a, a battalion guide on. Uh, it would be the, the flag that's flown when the uh, battalion commander, lieutenant colonel uh, was present, but it uh, represents the group, uh, the 3rd Special Forces group in uh, Fort Bragg, currently in Fort Bragg, uh, North Carolina, uh, which I was assigned to, uh, again, as an intelligence officer. And um, it, it doesn't look like a whole lot, and it's, it's pretty, but uh, it doesn't look like a whole lot, but it, behind it represents a lot of uh, uh, involvement with some wonderful soldiers uh, with a with another deployment, this time to uh, Nigeria, uh, again under President Clinton, um, that deployment uh, that 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 flag represents was was a, a major turning point in my life to prove that the things that I had seemingly failed at were not actually failures. Um, my time in Haiti was, I mean, Nigeria was uh, was very good, was very um, productive. Um, meant a lot to me because a lot of people um, entrusted a, a lot of uh, responsibility to me. Uh, I was, for about a four-week time period, I was alone uh, with long hair and, and concealed weapon. And I was responsible for bringing in President Clinton when he came uh, to, to visit the country and um, was given a, lot of, uh, a very lot of responsibility. And then uh, executed a mission uh, shortly after that with, with my soldiers from the unit uh, that was fantastic. Uh, we made a lot of uh, good headway and uh, prepared some soldiers, uh, hopefully influenced some lives, uh, to go and to, to fight a battle in um, Sierra Leone um, and to fight against the, uh, the oppression of the Liberian Army uh, in Sierra Leone.
0: Now, did, uh, what did you call a guide?
1: A guide on,
0: guide on. Okay, now that's the actual guide on. The next thing that I see on the wall, uh, trying to paint the vi- the visual picture, that's correct. The, the The
1: joke guide on that I spoke of earlier is is on one side of the collection of of things, and then the the real guide on the the flag that flew on a on about a uh, six foot pole uh, every time that I came into work, uh, every time that I was present. Uh, this flag was there, and it, it meant that I was there and that the commander was, was on site.
0: Yeah, okay, and next you have your books. You've got bookshelf with a bunch of books on it. A uh, bunch of books. A bunch of books, and that's just what he has uh, physically on the bookshelf that's not counting his computer with thousands and thousands of books on software. Um, now, you're about ready to receive uh, your... You're graduating and receiving what level?
1: It'll be the, the it'll be a standard master's of divinity. Uh, it's a master's level degree. Uh, it's 90 92 hours long, uh, master's level coursework, and um, it's the the requisite degree for a Protestant to be approved. Um, it's the educational level for a Protestant to be approved as a chaplain in the Army, but uh, also it's the it's kind of the the mid grade degree amongst uh, theological education uh, that pastors would receive, or missionaries, or or that type of thing.
0: Okay, and also, uh, I think there's another piece of requirement that you've uh, satisfied that's hanging on the wall uh, next to a a, uh, belt board, and it's your certificate of ordination that happened April 29th of uh, 2009, Uh, is that a a requirement to be a chaplain?
1: Yes, absolutely. Let's see. Uh, the short list is have to get a, a Master's of Divinity, have to be ordained within your denomination um, as a minister of the gospel or, or however it's termed uh, in your denomination, and then you have to be endorsed by your denominational agency. And in my case, that's the North American Mission Board, uh, the, Sud- the, the mission board of the, of the Southern Baptist Convention, the cooperative program. Uh, that deals specifically with North America, Canada, United States, South America, I mean Central america and um, and they also handle the endorsements of chaplains of all varieties, not just military chaplains but hospital chaplains, workplace chaplains, um, that type of thing but but specifically the certificate of ordination was a uh, was a very big time for me. Uh, the ordination board met It included my father and my father in law so that's that's very special to me. Uh, it was an opportunity for, for everybody that was there that's that has been ordained in some capacity uh, to ask me very hard questions about my beliefs, about my uh, my understanding of the gospel, my understanding of the Bible, uh, my intentions um, for ministry, my call to ministry. I had to give my testimony very similar to what I'm doing now uh, to them. And uh, at, the, at the end of that, they approved that I was pretty confident that they were would, but uh, they approved. And then uh, that day was very, very special to me. Uh, the guy that, uh, that saw in my life uh, something that I didn't see, uh, his name is Chaplain Todd Williams. Um, he and I served together in my last duty station. And uh, at, a, at a point of desperation in my life, he had already become my friend, very, very, very dear friend. And uh, he saw at that point of desperation that I was miserable in my life even though I was a very successful officer, and that's the part that just continues to amaze me. My career was, was incredible. I had, um, I had a lot in front of me. Um, I could have had a very, very successful career as a military intelligence officer, but, um, but he saw at that point of, of my personal desperation that I wasn't obedient to God and that I was missing uh, the calling on my life. And so I had the wonderful privilege. He flew in from Fort Lewis, Washington for just that day um, to do my ordination service. And uh, he, he gave a challenge uh, to me, but also the, the church that I currently attend has got a lot of uh, future uh, pastors in it, and he challenged them and uh, challenged them with the concept of being a sheepdog um, in God's church that it's not our job uh, again to be the holy spirit it's not our job to be the head of the church it's our job to uh to manage the sheep as it were uh, that, are, that are under our care and uh and that that's a big responsibility but that responsibility depends completely upon the shepherd the great shepherd jesus christ and uh that our, our that we need to have our eyes continually focused on him he also challenged us that ministry would be very lonely that's uh it's something that's often forgotten. Um, many of us look to our pastors, to our chaplains, as uh, as people that we can go to when our lives are difficult. But oftentimes, chaplains and pastors don't have people that they can go to, and so they continue to take on um, the burdens of others, which compound the burdens of themselves, and um, and that can lead to burnout. So. I would encourage you to pray for me, to pray for all the chaplains in the United States Army, to pray for your pastor, to pray for Dr. John, uh, because ministry is, can be a very lonely place. In an effort to to uh, to maintain confidentiality of those that would come to us, to maintain trust, uh, we we just can't talk even to our wives many times about the things that we hear, and some of those things are pretty horrific, and so we've we've got to deal with those. And so I've I have people like Todd Williams that uh, that I've placed in my life for just that that purpose. We share with one another. We share the burden together, and so this this thing is this uh, this Christian walk is um, is not meant to be lived alone. And so I would encourage you right now, if you don't have friends to uh, uh, that are Christians, to find some that you can walk in this journey together with um, along this this path. Amen.
0: Um, Now, um, being a chaplain, what do you see um, as the need of the soldiers? I want to say this real quick before you do, while you think about that. When I went to Iraq, I I did my active duty with the Navy, and I was exposed to Navy chaplains. Um, When I went to Iraq, I was part of the Army. I I went over there uh, with a contract with the Army, and I was impressed. By the spirituality of the army chaplains and uh, not taking anything for Navy chaplains but I just maybe it was because we was in the, the theater and in Iraq or whatever but there was a, a, a definitely a spirituality a strong spiritual element to the the men that wore the cross that were chaplains and how they ministered to the personnel that they uh, were with them but what do you see as you're about ready to go back into the military now as a chaplain um now let me let me go back you said you were miserable though you had a good career ahead of mm-hmm. you you were miserable as a chaplain i mean not as a uh, in your career in the military uh and this and chaplain uh uh todd saw this what happened yeah
1: um If I may, let me first answer the the first question, and then I'll actually go back and and tell a bit of that testimony, because I think that's very important, perhaps, to your listeners. But I see my role. I I, I returned when I felt called to ministry, and that will be also addressed here in a moment with the the rest of the testimony piece. When I finally surrendered to the ministry, maybe I should say it that way, I looked once again. I had the opportunity to step back almost like I did when I was 14 years old, and look at all the branches of service. And so I look then at uh, Navy chaplains, at Air Force chaplains, at uh, at, at Army chaplains. And it, and I'll say the Navy chaplains have a have a unique role in that they're not only Navy chaplains; they can also be Coast Guard chaplains and Marine chaplains. So there's a there's a broad um, uh, base for the Navy chaplains. And so I want to be very careful here that I'm I'm certainly not condemning any branch of service, and I'm not condemning chaplains in those services, but what I saw at that point was was that reality, that due to the makeup of the Air Force, due to the makeup of the Navy, that Navy and Air Force chaplains had less opportunity to interact with people one-on-one on a day-to-day basis. That Air Force and Navy chaplains functioned more like pastors, more like Methodist pastors, quite frankly, because they would be assigned to a chapel. and uh, And less like what I had personally experienced from chaplains in my career and what I desired to be as a chaplain. And so that's why I chose to return to the Army specifically because a chaplain in the Army has the opportunity. His, his number one goal, and they, my understanding is they teach this at the schoolhouse. I've heard it over and over and over again is that that an Army chaplain's primary ministry is called Ministry of Presence. That, uh, that, that an Army chaplain is there Embedded with the unit, down to the lowest soldier, uh, day-to-day, sleeping in the same places they sleep, eating the same things that they eat, going out potentially on missions, um, you know, hopefully in a little more protected uh, position than the, than the front uh, lead vehicle, but uh, but still going out to where the, the actual conflict is. and uh, And that's just, that's not an opportunity that's afforded to Navy and, and Air Force chaplains. And so what you get is, is uh, in the Army is this opportunity, and probably in the Marines as well, this opportunity to see day to day the chaplain right there with you, sweating just like you're sweating, carrying the same junk you're carrying, and uh, having to put up with the separation from family just like you are, and, uh, and see the reality of how Christ impacts um, the chaplain's life so that he deals with those same circumstances that the soldiers deal with. <clears throat> so I, I, I hope that answers the question of what do I see as my ministry. I, my desire, um, I've always been described as a muddy boot soldier, which, which means that I preferred to have mud on my boots and, and a dirty rumpled uniform and out in the woods and sleeping on the ground and, and just living that, that nasty soldier life day to day I preferred that much better than the the starched uniform walking on the parade field, um, you know, marching to pomp and circumstance, and that uh, just um, that part of the army doesn't appeal to me. I like being out there gritty with the soldiers, and my commander saw that. They recognized that in me, and uh, that's the kind of chaplain that I want to be. I, I want to be, I want my office hours to be posted, and I'll be there for counseling if necessary. But I want um, the office hours to not be. Uh, necessary because they've already had an opportunity to see me because I'm out at the training ranges, I'm out um, on the battle zone, I'm out in the airplane, I'm right where the soldiers are.
0: And uh, and, and that's my desire for ministry. Okay, well let me ask you this then. Um, doing that <clears throat> and having that desire, um, it's you have a wife and four children. And um, that means that they're going to be... Um, Uh, in the military, if I can say, uh, just (laughs) as much as you, and they're going to be um, sacrificing certain things in their life uh, right along with you in a different, you know, uh, of course, in a different way. Uh, So how did you get to meet such a lady uh, (laughs) that would uh, uh, encourage you? uh, And uh, and you you have four
1: children. Four children, that's right.
0: Yeah, I, uh,
1: I'll i tell that as, as part of my testimony, and maybe that'll shorten the other other chunk of it. Um, she is a phenomenal lady. I cannot believe uh, this precious woman. I hope she gets to hear me say this in a public forum because she doesn't get to hear it enough. But uh, Anissa is an absolute jewel. Um, I met her in college. Uh, we both attended Mississippi State together. Uh, she's from central Mississippi, and uh, I met her when I was probably the furthest from God I'd been since I was nine years old. Um, college life exposed me to all those things that I had missed out on in my Christian upbringing. And um, and although I didn't embrace them, I didn't understand uh, why people would want to be hung over the next day, I didn't understand uh, the drive to the weekend just to drink, um, I still... Um, found myself falling further and further away. And it oddly, uh, in my freshman year, it was a, a girlfriend of mine that was uh, Christian that kind of started it. Uh, we were getting um, a little more serious with one another, and uh, after the Christmas break, she broke up with me, and her reason was that she was becoming too physically attracted to me. Well, as a 19-year-old boy, I didn't understand that. <laughs> What's the problem with being physically attracted to me? And so um, I began to slip away. I, I continued for some reason to attend church um, because that's just what you do, I guess. Um, but I was certainly raising hell Monday through Saturday, and um, and trying to be a saint on Sunday, and uh, and it showed. Most most people knew I wasn't. Uh, my lifestyle showed that. But my wife Anissa watched me. Uh, she was in an organization that that was a, a support group to the. Reserve Officer Training Corps, the ROTC program there at Mississippi State that I was heavily involved in. Uh, I did everything there was to do that was military while I was in college. And um, she, was, uh, she was part of this auxiliary group, and she watched me through a mutual friend go through several really bad relationships, several relationships that I was I just, quite frankly, I was dumb. Um, I should have never been in those relationships, and I never should have continued pursuing them. And she just kept shaking her head and saying, boy, he sure looks a lot smarter than he's acting. And, uh, and she persisted with, with being interested in me. Uh, the funniest thing, she has been a soldier's wife from the beginning. Uh, she loves the military. She loves soldiers. She fell in love with me because of the way that I called cadence on the drill field. She liked to hear me call Jody calls on the drill field. Uh, she loved to hear it and she made it uh, a special purpose to get out there and hear me do it. I, I've always found that fascinating, but, um, but I had just come off a very, very bad relationship. I had just come back from uh, the, the ROTC program and had sent me to the army's uh, airborne school. I uh, had made my five requisite jumps from the, uh, from an airplane while in flight and I uh, had gotten my blood rings from a retiring jump master. And, uh, had come back um, as a, quite a cocky young man with my chest stuck out and my j- brand-new jump wings on my chest, and I was looking for the next girl. And uh, and I say that uh, with as much guilt and shame um, as you could possibly have that my eyes first locked on Anissa for the wrong reasons. and um, But she had this underlying... Understanding that there was more to me than I was letting show, and so our first date uh, was was headed in the wrong direction. And uh, as I began to, to to make a move on her, she resisted and uh, and put me in my place. And uh, and I realized I was it was as if I was hit with a two by four in the forehead. That this was what women were supposed to be like. That this was what I was really desiring in my life. That all those girls that that lived free and wild at at college that I thought were what I I wanted were nothing. Um, They meant absolutely nothing to me. And so literally on our first date, I took her home uh, when it was all over. And on my way driving home, uh, I heard a a song in my head, um, was reminded of some things that my mother had said. And on our very first date, I decided that this was going to be the girl that I married. And so within the first week, I had told her so, and, um, and she expressed that, that she felt the same way. And uh, oddly, after that, we, we didn't really date. We just kind of went over to each other's apartments and cooked dinner for each other. We did homework together, hung out watched television. Uh, I began going to church with, with sincerity. She shook me back to where I should have been all along. And, uh, and that, was, that was the beginning of the new journey that I was to take. It was the beginning of the reminder of what I was supposed to be as a man of Christ, and um, and then we shortly uh, a year or so later we got married and began our journey in the army, and uh, and she loved it. Uh, when God called me out of the army to, to potentially become a chaplain, uh, she was um, she wasn't real sure about that. She uh, she had married a soldier. She loved being an army wife. She loved uh, she loved going to the PX. She loved uh, the, the the VA hospital, she loved the whole shebang, everything tied up to it. She loved going to, to Army wives teas. She loved supporting soldiers when we were on deployment. She just loved it. And so it was probably harder for her to leave uh, than it was for me. And uh, But at the same time, the Holy Spirit had been talking to her, and, and she knew that this was what we were supposed to do. Now, my children, my oldest two children, all they knew was Army life. They were born in the Army. They're what's lovingly called Army brats. And uh, until we came to the seminary, that was all they knew. And so they loved. Uh, my, my daughter, when she was in kindergarten, um, was asked what her daddy did for a living. And she said, my daddy sneaks into bad guys' houses and kills them. <laughs> and uh, that was her understanding of, of my job. And so she wasn't real sure what it meant for me to become a chaplain uh, when we left all that. So uh, my kids loved it, absolutely loved it. But uh, now, seven years later, as we returned, two more children. That are now seminary children, a whole different breed of animal. Um, we asked them um, as we began considering their return um, what they thought about going back to the army, and and they were they were hesitant at first. But uh, we reminded them that because of their army upbringing, they were really really good at making friends, and that they were really really good at being colorblind. They don't see um, ra- they don't see racial problems at all. Uh, they don't differentiate between color of skin. They don't um, They don't see people with, with handicaps or deformities as as, uh, as different. They treat everybody the same. And um, I'm tickled to death to have kids like that. A um, large part is my wife's uh, journey. Uh, my oldest son and my daughter uh, participated in my homeless ministry that that um, that is what I did while I was here. Uh, and they loved on people that smelled bad that had slept on the street the night before that were hung over that that um, had crazy ideas that were that were addicted to
0: drugs. they loved on them right beside me uh, with no fear. Tell me about the homeless ministry you, came to, the, you came to the seminary uh, and how did you get into the homeless ministry woo that, the, the homeless ministry what if is the ministry correct? That, yeah, that encompasses the large part of it. <laughs> okay. Well, that's the name of it. And and uh, the homeless ministry, you came to the uh, seminary. And uh, how 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 much, uh, when did you begin your homeless ministry after you came to the seminary? <laughs> wow. Uh, that's a whole other hour, but I'll try to make it short. Um, well, just tell me about the homeless ministry.
1: Sure, absolutely. That uh, that was a fascinating journey. In, in my first semester uh, at the seminary, I had like everything else I had done. I'd come to the seminary to uh, to get done as quickly as possible. I had my plan. Um, e- even then, when I had surrendered to ministry, I was I was trying to do it my way, and uh, and not fully listening to God's way. And uh, so, my wife was going to work, and uh, I was going to uh, work at the school where the kids went and uh, I was going to go to school full-time and get through this thing. And uh, that that plan was interrupted when our third child came along and uh, turned around I was offered this job. But during that first semester, uh, a friend of mine who's now a a pastor of a a very large church in Birmingham uh, and I began going um, down to the French Quarter. We would take a box of chicken, and we would just pass it out, and we would love on people. We'd hand out the, the food, which was was just a, an opening to conversation, and then we would spend hours on end um, just talking to and loving and developing relationships with people. And as that progressed, um, we de- decided to ask the next relevant question, what if we could do more for you? What if we, we could provide more than just a chicken leg or a or a chicken breast and a little bit of friendship? What What would that look like? How could we help you In the state of despair that you're at right now and each one of them without fail said man you're an idiot if you can't find food in this city and we know you don't have a lot of money you can quit bringing the chicken as long as you continue to bring your friendship and uh, we said well man we'll we'll do that not a big deal and then they said and the thing that we really need is a church that will accept us just the way we are and so that was like saying sick him to a dog my friend and I decided at that point that uh, that we would bring church to them, and so we began uh, with just in a few weeks we began what we call church in the square. We're real original with names, and um, we, Jackson Square. Jackson Square, right. and walk. so we um, we would go down on on Sunday mornings. Um, a crew would get it get to the church at six o'clock on Sunday mornings, talking about dedicated crew, and they would fix between eighty and a hundred plates of breakfast. Um, bigger than our our church membership was at the time and uh, we would box them up and uh, take them down and we would have uh, we'd have a a worship service Uh, we had a couple of guys who play guitar for us just out in the open air rain or shine didn't matter we were we were committed to be there every week and uh, we would we would uh, a little worship time and then i would me or one of the other guys would preach and uh, and then we'd spend the next 30 to 45 minutes loving on them while they ate their breakfast And then there was always a standing invitation that they could come with us uh, back to our regular church service because our church was willing to take people just as they were uh, and to have to come to the regular church service. Well, out of that began to to grow some people that took us up on that offer. And we had some regulars that would invite others to the church in the square. Uh, Every week there'd be new faces for us to love on. And so we got up to where we were bringing about 20 people back to our regular church service. Uh, we would do church. My wonderful wife and my kids uh, would prepare a, a, a lunchtime meal. Uh, the group got so big that it out, that it outgrew our house. We we would initially were taking them to our house and we'd wash their clothes and hang out, maybe watch football, and just be family for a while. Uh, but it outgrew that, so the the church agreed for us to use the fellowship hall, and uh, we would serve uh, a family style uh, lunch for whoever would come. And uh, and then we just love on them and have prayer time, address their concerns, uh, let them make phone calls uh, because I had access to a phone. Uh, Just whatever we could do to meet their physical needs that would put them at ease to hear the reality of their spiritual needs. And then out of that grew um, the opportunity for me to go into the the Orleans Parish Prison. Um, Part of the reality of homelessness is that guys get rolled up sometimes for public drunkenness and those types of things. And if they were consistent coming week after week and they didn't show up, then, then I, I learned pretty quickly that that meant they were in jail for 20 days, typically. And uh, so I began, I would, I would fill out a card and send it in as their pastor, and I would get approved typically to, uh, to go visit them. And then now I had a, a literally a captive audience that was sober, uh, that was ready to listen to all the things and to, to the love that I'd been showing otherwise. And, um, and also began to minister to the guards in that respect. So the ministry just continued to grow, and it was absolutely beautiful. And, uh, and I was devastated by Hurricane Katrina because God scattered that, um, that church all over the United States. But I saw through God's sovereignty and his plan that the seeds that we had planted in these people's lives uh, did not become dead fruit. Uh, these many, many, many of the people that were involved in Church in the Square were scattered to the four winds all over the United States. And I began hearing from them one by one that they had found a job, that they had reconnected with family, that they had, uh, one of my most favorite is a former Jewish man that's now teaching Hebrew at a university uh, who had been homeless on the streets of New Orleans. And uh, just over and over and over again, we heard these wonderful testimonies of God taking the seeds that we'd planted and scattering them. And then in my capacity as, as uh, chief of police at the time for the seminary, um, after we returned from Hurricane Katrina, uh, I was asked if if uh, if I would mind leading a worship service uh, in our chapel here on campus. And so still being very original with names, we called it Church in the Quad, uh, since the chapel was on the quad. And uh, God took the scattered community of my homeless folks, and he turned around and he gave me a wonderful community of police officers, of FEMA workers, of contractors and of uh, volunteers that had come to the city to work. And each Sunday I had two worship services because the city didn't shut down on Sunday. had a 7 o'clock uh, a.m. worship service and a 7 o'clock p.m. worship service, preached the same sermon twice because it was always a different congregation. And uh, I would preach in uniform, uh, had my gun on most of the time, and uh, and uh, it raised a lot of questions about my shepherding role. But, uh, but we had a wonderful time. Uh, Communing in the desperateness of post katrina New Orleans, and uh, and growing out of that. <clears throat> now, beyond that, as if I hadn't said enough, um, just prior to Katrina, uh, one of the homeless, my homeless regulars, uh, had a had a friend uh, named Mel Jones that uh, had come back to the city to start a drug and alcohol rehab center, uh, Bethel Colody, uh Men's community, and um, much longer story than we have time for now. But but Mel and I got connected uh, in just a, an amazing Holy Spirit guided way, and my life changed for a desire to minister to the down and outs, and I fell in love with the city. I fell in love with the people of the city, and uh, I began trying to help Mel uh, with what he was doing, but I also had in my my life a vision. For something better, for something something bigger, for a facility uh, that we could house people full time, um, that these people that I was ministering to on the streets, uh, a safe place for them to get off the streets, to get their minds straightened out. And about that time, this is uh, after Katrina. About that time, I ran into Ron Fernandez, who who had a similar vision, similar desire, and uh, through another strange set of God-provided circumstances. uh, we came together and then ultimately uh, met Dr. John, um, and uh, the three of us began together uh, on a journey um, with Whitestone, which is, is where it is today, I guess. Yes. And um, and we began working together in, in that capacity, and uh, that is a very, very precious and dear time in my life uh, that shaped me. Um, I'm convinced today that God took me through all of those things, through Church in the Square, Church in the Quad, and and now Whitestone, in preparation to give chaplaincy back to me. Uh, I would have never in my wildest dreams orchestrated my ministry experience and my, my time at seminary and my work experience in the way that it's happened, but I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't go back and change anything in my life journey to this point And so when, uh, a little over a year ago, when Christ uh, handed back to me the mantle of chaplaincy, at one point I thought I was getting out of chaplaincy altogether, that I was going to minister to to the homeless, to the addicted community for the rest of my life. And when Christ, uh, through another set of circumstances, handed back back to me, I saw clearly that he had used all of those experiences to further prepare me to be the best chaplain that I could be, to love folks uh, more tenderly, more dearly, more at the the emotional uh, level that our soldiers deserve, and uh, and he had been preparing me all along. Uh, I like to call this my forty years in the wilderness, uh, as he prepared uh, Moses to lead the people out of Israel, uh, out of Egypt, uh, into the promised land. Um, this journey has has been my wilderness journey, and it has not been lost. He has taught me how to be a shepherd.
0: Amen. And it's just, in other words, another. Uh, another page in your, uh, you're turning another page in your, your life. Um, who, in, in, in closing, what would you like to communicate to those who will be listening? Um, what's, what's on your heart right now as we close out your testimony? If there's anything that I, uh, you have four children, uh, is there anything that, uh, you would like to say that I haven't, uh, brought up, uh, please do so now. For brevity
1: and for time's sake, my stories can go on and on, and every one of my stories, I hope you hear my heart, that is Christ-centered, that it's all about Christ in my life, using me in spite of myself oftentimes, using me uh, even when I was desperately trying to go the wrong way, and uh, and I just want to be an encouragement uh, to, the, to the audience. Um, I want to be an encouragement to Dr. John that... Um, that living a life following Christ is such a wonderful experience. It's crazy. It's wild. It'll take you places you never thought you would ever go. But when you look back, we often say that hindsight's 2020. 20 And I, I submit to you that a full lifetime of hindsight's will only begin to show you where it is that God has been moving in your life um, to direct you, to guide you, to lead you, to provide for you. He desires so much for your life. And so my testimony is just that, that God has provided, uh, God has endured my silliness, my mistakes. He has been patient. He has been kind. He has has directed me, and uh, he has given me experiences beyond my wildest dreams. Here I am approaching 39 years old, and I've given you over an hour of testimony of stories of things that God has done in my life, and I could fill up books and books and books, and I'm, I'm a young man still, so I think. And each one of those stories is tied somehow to the reality of Christ, his sacrificial death on the cross, and the redemptive plan of his blood that I now stand, even though I am a prodigal, nasty, stinking in my sins, wallered in the mud pen, God has run down to the end of the road to throw around me a blood-soaked robe that declares I'm his child and I'm no longer a slave. And he's put shoes on my feet that say that I belong in the household of God. And he's put a ring on my finger that gives me the authority of Christ, that gives me the Holy Spirit living in me to live my life as Christ with flesh on, as the Holy Spirit with flesh on, and to be a light and an example. And so my desire every day, and and I challenge you as you begin your journey, find some way today to smear Jesus all over somebody. When you go up to somebody and you shake their hand, you leave them with either two things. Either the stink of death and the horrible aspect of hell, or you leave them slimy and dripping with the love of Christ. And so I challenge you to be the latter. And I also challenge you to pray daily as I do, that God would open your heart and your mind and your eyes to see the hurts and needs of others around you. Now I forewarn you that when you see with the eyes of Christ, you will begin to weep You will begin to see how wretched you are. You will begin to see how much you need a Savior. But it's a challenge that's so glorious. Because when you see beyond yourself, beyond your self-centeredness to those around you, to the hurts and needs of others around you, then and only then do you see the glorious salvation that was given to you
0: in your wretched condition through Christ on the cross. Amen. Thank you. It's been a privilege uh, to... Sit and listen to you, and get your uh, your testimony and uh, what you shared with us. And I know there's a lot more that uh, I could ask you, and uh, and that you could. I, I'd I'd love to hear. Uh, maybe another time we can do that. Uh, like your physical workout, the way you regiment yourself physically, the way um, uh, the the conflict of um, your a soul, a Christian soldier, uh, the military, and being a Christian uh, of love and peace, and here you are uh, in the military. Um, you know, there's a lot of things I'd like uh, like to talk to you about, and maybe we will later. Um, but uh, well, the tell me a little, how do you settle that thing, that conflict, that contradiction by some of a Christian soldier, <laughs> military?
1: <laughs> the reality is I'm not sure that I, I can. I'm not sure that I have. Um, the, fifth command, the Sixth Commandment says do not kill. In the original Hebrew, it's one word, don't kill. Um, translated into two words. Um, life is precious to God he desires. Now, where I balance it is the the love of God shown to us in the New Testament is shown to us through a violent sacrifice of Christ surrendering himself on the cross to the government of the day um, to die for our sins as a final representation of the sacrifice that had to be made. From the very beginning um, in the garden, God covered, God accommodated Uh, Our sin, the sin of Adam and Eve uh, in the garden by blood sacrifice. Adam and Eve deserved to die for what they did. They were told not to do it. They were told the consequences of it. They were deceived and they fell into temptation. And they deserved to die. But God accommodated them by killing an animal to properly cover their nakedness before him. Because they had to be separated from the holiness of God at that point through their sin. And so the reality at that point in the garden of conflict began. And so uh, where I've come to so far in my journey is that absolute evil, the, the the free will of man that was also given to Lucifer when he was an angel. He had the free will to choose to glory in the Lord. He was beautiful, but he was beautiful only because he reflected God. And he chose through his own self-centered nature to to reject god and to be boastful and prideful and to say that he was like god and so that could not stand and god had to kick him out and so he's he's tried to take us along with him so once that that day began and the conflict began it has been inevitable that wars would happen it has been inevitable that murder self-centered murder would happen it all comes back to pride and self-centeredness every act of violence in the world every sin comes back ultimately to self-centeredness and pride and, more importantly, to ungodliness as the root of it. So our sins are ungodly acts rooted in self-centeredness and pride. And so the reality is that as the world continues to turn, that wars will happen. We cannot sit back on our hands and allow innocent people to be killed for no good reason by dictators and tyrants in this world we have to act and that's what i believe about our country i think that's what makes our country great is the judeo-christian foundation of our country and um, and so we fight wars hopefully we fight our wars for the reason of establishing now i don't agree with all the political reasons often for why we do things but i am a soldier Uh, as paul has said i'm a soldier under the authority of someone else and so i must execute my duty my ultimate duty is to god And so that will never be compromised. But I want to be right there. If our soldiers are having to fight wars for my freedom, I want to be right there beside them, encouraging them, answering those questions. Because I don't know about you and your salvation walk, but I think it was at a point of desperation that life change occurs. I can't think of any more desperate situation than uh, when bombs are falling or bullets are flying uh, that would cause a person to consider their immortality it would cause a, a person to consider what comes after death. It would cause them to consider whether or not God existed and whether or not he cared for us. And so with all that in balance, I am absolutely committed to follow the orders of my country. I'm absolutely committed to follow uh, the leaders that are placed over me as an oath that I will take on the 19th says. And uh, and I will do that unlike um, the, the terrible tragedy that happened at Fort Hood, um, uh, Major Nadal apparently never understood his oath, and he took it into his own hands to try to change uh, a political system, and uh, and that's a terrible, terrible tragedy, that is a terrorist act. And uh, my desire is to is to be a small piece of reestablishing the trust and confidence in our uh, caretakers uh, of our soldiers that are out there, that to provide for our men and women on the battlefield um, the opportunity to face the realities of life and to face it in a healthy manner and to come back to their families um, changed, certainly, by the realities of warfare, but changed in a way that will cause them to be brave men and women. that will cause them to be um, soldiers for the Lord, hopefully. It will cause them to be good mothers and fathers and to be good citizens in the United States.
0: Amen. But well, you know, uh, uh, brother. Along with that, I I just thought of how would that affect uh, a, a soldier that has a problem, and they go to a psychiatrist or a chaplain. Uh, what? Where's the trust at? That must have like you, you said. I guess you re- uh, re- uh, referred to. You know, it's gone. I, I how how can I trust this? this supposedly uh, psychiatrist or a chaplain or anybody that is to uh, be uh, that I'm supposed to, uh, I'm referred to, to go to for help. Um, how can I, uh, the, the trust is gone. the faith is gone in the system or in, in those that would refer somebody to. I, I want to make sure always that
1: I ultimately return back that, we are individually responsible for our own thoughts, actions, and deeds. And so we can sit back and blame the government. We can sit back and blame blame the, the military leadership for not having prevented this act of terrorism at Fort Hood. But uh, the reality is he made a decision on his own uh, to do that that day. He made a decision to follow after the radical aspects of Islam. He made the decision to... Um, to perpetrate the act that, that he is uh, will will ultimately be convicted of, in the taking of life, and uh, he made that decision himself. Similarly, we make our own decisions day by day, and so I think it's terrible when pastors fall from grace. When when we hear about a pastor that commits adultery, I think it's terrible when uh, when our caretakers, like Major Nadal, like um, uh, some chaplains have done in the past. Uh, fail at their mission, at what they're supposed to do. But that is one individual that has failed and does it make the job harder? Absolutely. Is it going to be more difficult now for, um, for people to trust um, not only people of different faith backgrounds and, and different uh, uh, stations in life, but of the whole caretaker community uh, itself? Absolutely. But I'm trusting that people will take a personal inventory, that they will see that this is one terrible event. The news always covers the anomaly. The news always covers the, uh, the, the terrible, the, uh, the, the newsworthy, as it were, um, events. And every day, day by day, thousands of chaplains go about their duty, thousands of uh, mental health care workers, thousands of social workers in the Army, thousands of civilian contractors go about their duty as unsung heroes day by day, intercepting right at that point of need, and they uh, provide um, the care and the trust that's needed. One of the neatest testimonies I had was when I first arrived at the seminary. I was uh, turning on my cable television, and uh, here I was, uh, a headstrong type A personality, surrendered to be a chaplain in the army, and uh, and the way that that you got your cable turned on at that time was you had to call uh, the headquarters of the cable company in, in California. Here I was in southern Louisiana, and you had to call California, and I got some guy on the other end of the line, and we started talking, and, and just the way that I talked, he picked up on the fact that I was, was a military person, and, and he decided to tell me that, that he was a military person. And, and I said, thank you. And we talked for a little bit more. And he said, well, what are you doing now, sir? And, and I said what I was doing. I was going to be a chaplain. And this guy, total random, but God-appointed uh, a time, this guy on the other end of the phone in California uh, said, hey, sir, I want to tell you how much I appreciate chaplains. He said, a chaplain in Iraq changed my life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He said, and he was a Southern Baptist chaplain. Mm-hmm. And so, sir, I'm I'm behind you 100%. You go do here I was getting cable television turned on and I'm being encouraged by a guy so far away whose life was impacted by a faithful servant whose name I'll never know, who was a chaplain in Iraq uh, in, in the first Gulf War, uh, who invested his life um, in this one soldier and whose life was changed. And so that's what I plan to do. Uh, my, my plan is every day is to pray. God opened my eyes and my heart to see the hurts and needs of others and if and to keep a, a, a lookout, just as I was trained in special forces to look out for possible ambush sites, I'm going to keep a lookout now for people that are hurting. And I'm going to pounce on them right where they're at and take every
0: opportunity to smear Jesus all over. Amen. I guess that's the one thing that we have, uh, that we can smear Jesus all over. Absolutely. It's not about us smearing ourselves over right. or our, our approach to psychology or therapy But we just let the Holy Spirit uh, do the counseling, and we just smeared Jesus, the love of God, all over them, and uh, knowing, knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt, that by doing this, the true therapist, the true counselor, the Mm -hmm. true uh, teacher is right there impacting that person's heart and life. Amen. Well, brother, I want everybody that hears this that they would encourage others to hear this testimony and also... To pray for our military, Mm -hmm. Um, they are in harm's way. They are. uh, I always look at it like this I'd love to see my grandson, he's 14 years old, run his four wheeler up and down uh, the street right in front of my house (laughs) without being concerned about rolling over an IED or Mm -hmm. a mine or being in gunfire, crossfire, uh, and the safety of that. Mm -hmm. Um, I thank God, first and foremost, I thank the Lord. But I know that because we're on somebody else's backyard and we are uh, we have this protection and quality of life uh, that is so desired by everybody on this world. And, uh, and, and uh, the military and the other uh, men that are on the front, men and women that are on the front line and our police force, our fire departments, we need to pray for them. We need to encourage them every chance we get. Um, and on a on a continual basis and uh, again uh chaplain uh busby uh it's been a privilege and honor to be with you and uh we're going to close out now so thank you brother you're welcome Jesus. Thank you for listening.